Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Males primarily carry out mass shootings, while females account for 4% of mass shootings in the United States. Overall, women are less likely to commit homicide, with 10 to 13% of homicides in the U.S. carried out by females. Women are also less likely to use firearms to carry out their homicidal impulses, with only 8% of firearm homicides committed by them. Today's focus is about a woman who broke the norms in every way. Okay, on to the show. It began like any other faculty meeting. It was 3 o'clock p.m. on February 12, 2010. Faculty and staff from the University of Alabama in Huntsville's biology department had just filed into the small, windowless conference room in the Shelby Center for Science and Technology. The department chair distributed printed agendas, and the meeting began. After about 50 minutes, the meeting drew to a close, and Amy Bishop, a neurobiologist at the university, stood and withdrew a 9mm Ruger from her purse. She turned and shot Gopi Pedala, the department chair, in the head. The other individuals in the room sat in shock for seconds that stretched out like eternity, while Amy pointed the gun at Stephanie Monticolo, a department assistant. The bullet found its mark, and Amy shot another individual, Adriel Johnson, a cell biologist. People began reacting, screaming, trying to find cover, and trying to escape the room. Unfortunately, Amy was blocking the only exit. Amy aimed at a fourth person, Maria Raglan Davis, and shot her. Deborah Moriarty, a colleague who considered Amy her friend, watched in horror and in disbelief as Amy shot Maria. Snapping two, she dove under the table screaming at Amy to remember Deborah's daughter and grandchild. Deborah flung her arms around Amy's legs and screamed, Amy, don't do this. Amy looked down and pointed the gun at Deborah. Amy pulled the trigger, but the gun just clicked. She pulled the trigger again, and it clicked again. Deborah crawled into the hallway, and Amy followed, pulling the trigger over and over. As Amy tried to repair her gun, Deborah ran back into the conference room where she and other colleagues barricaded the door. Inside the room lay three of her colleagues dead and three others bleeding profusely from their wounds. Another colleague, Joseph Ng, told reporters that Amy was methodical about executing her colleagues. Everyone who was shot was sitting on the same side of an oval conference table as Amy. The remaining individuals were on the other side, dropped to the floor and tried to use the table as cover. Meanwhile, Amy, who was locked out of the conference room, decided to leave. She cleaned herself up in a first-floor bathroom, washing off the gun and throwing it and her bloody blazer in the trash can. Amy calmly walked to a lab and asked a student if she could borrow their cell phone, then called her husband. She told him she was done then tried to leave the building via a loading dock. There was a sheriff's deputy waiting for her, and she was taken into custody. 
Immediately, the questions started to pile up. Who was Amy Bishop, and why had she done this? Amy Bishop was from Braintree, Massachusetts, a middle-class suburb of Boston. Her mother, Judy, was involved in local politics as an elected member of the town committee. Her father, Sam, was a professor of art at Northeastern University. She had one brother, Seth, who was a year or two younger than her. Amy had completed her doctorate at Harvard University and was married to Jim Anderson for about two decades at the time of the university shooting. The couple had four children, aged 8 to 18. That's just the surface information, however. Once the investigation into the shooting began, reports of a troubled and troublesome woman appeared. In 2002, Amy Bishop was charged with assault for hitting a woman in the head after an altercation over a booster seat at an IHOP. She allegedly shouted, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. She was never found guilty, although she was put on probation for this incident. In 1993, Amy and her husband were investigated in relation to a mail bomb sent to Dr. Paul Rosenberg of Boston's Children's Hospital. Dr. Rosenberg was responsible for Amy's resignation as a postdoctoral fellow at the hospital's neurobiology lab. Two weeks later, a pipe bomb package was sent to Dr. Rosenberg's home. Jim, Amy's husband, was implicated because he said he wanted revenge on Dr. Rosenberg due to a bad review he had given Amy. On December 19, 1993, Dr. Rosenberg and his wife had just returned to their Newton, Massachusetts home after a vacation. Going through the mail, Dr. Rosenberg began to open a box. Instead of opening the flaps, he used a knife to slice the box open, unknowingly avoiding disaster. Had the box been opened via the flaps, the bomb would have detonated, killing anyone in the immediate vicinity. When Dr. Rosenberg saw the contents of the package, he and his wife immediately fled their home, contacting the police. State fire marshals disarmed the bomb, and luckily, the Rosenbergs were safe. Dr. Rosenberg told investigators he had been instrumental in Amy's resignation from the hospital the month before. He said despite her Harvard credentials, he felt she could not meet the standards required for the work. He said despite her Harvard credentials, he felt she could not meet the standards required for the work. Others said that her husband wanted to shoot him, bomb him, stab him, or strangle him. Others said that Amy's husband wanted to shoot him, bomb him, stab him, or strangle Dr. Rosenberg. Going even further back in 1986, when Amy was 19, there was a shooting incident that disrupted the peaceful family home, which was an old Victorian in Braintree. In the front yard remained the gnarled copper beech tree that Seth once climbed, unable to climb back down until Judy calmly talked him down. Seth and Amy had a seemingly idyllic childhood, with parents who had been married for years. Judy and Sam met at the New England School of Art in Boston. Sam had been born Sam Papazoglos, son of Greek immigrants. After joining the Air Force, Sam changed his last name to Bishop. It was in this pastoral tableau that a split-second act of violence shattered forever. On one sad night in 1985, the family returned from a wake in Sam's father's honor. What they found was they had been burgled, and Judy's wedding ring was taken, 
along with silver cups to mark Amy and Seth's births. As a result, Sam purchased a shotgun and shells, despite the protestations of Judy and Amy. He kept the gun unloaded on a shelf in his bedroom closet and a box of shells on the nightstand. On December 6, 1986, a frantic 911 call was placed from the Bishop home. Judy called to report a shooting. Her daughter Amy had shot her son, and she had witnessed the whole thing. It was an accident. On that morning, Judy had risen before anyone else in the home and driven to Quincy where she stabled a horse. She stayed there for quite some time riding the horse and cleaning out the stable, which she did almost daily. When she arrived home, Seth pulled in right after her and the two unloaded groceries and carried them inside. Amy came downstairs, carrying the shotgun and said it was loaded, but she didn't know how to unload it. Judy told her not to point the gun at anyone. Unfortunately, she had no sooner said that than Amy pointed it at her brother and pulled the trigger. Amy was standing very close to Seth, so this was a point-blank shotgun blast. Amy left the home, carrying the shotgun. She pointed it at a car in the hopes that it would stop, but when it didn't, she went on to a local automobile dealership looking for a car. Local officers searched for Amy and quickly found her. Meanwhile, Seth had been taken to the nearest hospital. Sam, who had been out shopping for Christmas presents, went to the hospital and saw Seth pushed past him on a gurney. He said Seth looked at him, but emergency room workers said he was already dead by then. Later that evening, Amy was released into Judy's care due to Amy's highly emotional state. The intention was to question her later, once she had a chance to calm down, but over the following days, this did not seem to happen. The investigation fell to the district attorney's office, who questioned Amy 11 days after the shooting. The ultimate ruling was an accidental shooting, but several individuals involved in the investigation stated later they had not seen the final paperwork. Amy's defense was that she was terrified to be in the house on her own after the burglary or robbery, but that begs the question. It had been at least a year since the burglary happened. So was this the first time she had been home alone since then? Amy also said that she and her father had an argument that morning before he had left. No charges were filed against Amy in the shooting death of her brother. Amy said she had fired one shot into the wall in her bedroom, covered it with a mirror, then went downstairs and shot Seth, then fired one more shot into the ceiling. The former police chief was shocked that anyone would consider he had been a part of the cover-up in this case as he did not instruct his officers to release Amy when they did, and he did not know her mother very well, despite the fact that she had served on the police personnel board a few years prior to the death of Seth. When questioned after Amy's shooting spree in Huntsville, the former chief said many of the files had gone missing, and no one knew where they were. Amy received no counseling after the shooting, and just threw herself into her schoolwork. She again attended classes at Northeastern University, riding with her father to and from each day. As time went on and she graduated from Northeastern, she rarely spoke of her dead brother. She entered Harvard seeking a PhD in genetics. During this time, she was dating Jim Anderson, 
who she had met at Northeastern while playing Dungeons and Dragons. They eventually got married in 1989 in a small ceremony in the same place as Seth Swaig. In 1991, Amy gave birth to their first of four children. Lily followed in quick succession by two more daughters, Thea and Phaedra. The PhD program was difficult combined with motherhood, but in 1993 she completed her thesis and began her postdoc career. When she gave birth to a son in 2001, few of her friends and colleagues knew the significance behind naming this son Seth. Baby Seth was born on what would have been her brother Seth's 33rd birthday. In 2003, Amy accepted a tenure-track position at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Amy and Jim began working on an invention, an automated cell incubator. But because she was spending so much time working on this invention and obtaining patents, she did not publish like a tenure-track faculty member should. She was warned repeatedly that weak publication could affect her position, but she chose to ignore these warnings. Additionally, students complained about Dr. Bishop. In at least the year leading up to the shootings, several students had said that she was reading straight out of the textbook and she never made eye contact with anyone. She consistently told her students she attended Harvard and that they were not as bright as their counterparts at Harvard. She dismissed several students from the lab with no explanation while others transferred out of her class. While Amy was working at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, she collaborated on a paper with Dr. Hugo Gonzalez-Ceratos. When the paper was completed, she flew into a rage because she was not first author, a prominent position in academic writing. In 2009, in what seems to be an attempt to have more articles published, she had one published in the online journal International Journal of General Medicine, a journal largely viewed as vanity or predatory publishing in the academic world. In vanity or predatory publishing, authors typically pay a fee to have their work published, and the work is typically not peer-reviewed as they are in legitimate journals. The article she published in 2008 listed four co-authors, Jim, Lily, Thea, and Phaedra. Her colleague, Deborah Moriarty, called this publication weird. In spring of 2009, Amy's tenure was denied. Tenured is the dream most academics wish and work for. With tenure, their position at a university is safe, only touchable for cause or extreme situations such as a financial strain or program closure. Amy wanted this financial security, which would also allow time for her to focus on research for publication as a book, which is what most tenured faculty do. Without tenure, Amy's position at the University of Alabama in Huntsville was no longer guaranteed, which meant she would need to find a new position and start over somewhere else. This was a low blow to Amy, who had been in the same position for six years. Adding salt to the wound was when Amy found out one member of the tenure board had called her crazy. Amy appealed and appealed and appealed, She hired an attorney. She became obsessed with Douglas Prasher, who had been a prominent molecular biologist until he could no longer obtain research funding, so he left academia. In 2008, Douglas was working in Huntsville, driving a courtesy van for a local dealership, when two scientists won the Nobel Prize based largely on his research. 
These two scientists assisted Douglas and convinced him to return to academia. And just a few months after the Huntsville shootings, Douglas did return. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day, which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health, like Bee Soothe Cough Syrup, the truly clean cough syrup that helps you get back on your feet. I try as much as possible to keep my voice healthy by using Bee Soothe for throat and immunity support, and the flavor is so much better than your standard cough syrup. It's naturally powered by nature's most powerful immune supporters, pure buckwheat honey, elderberry, chaga mushroom, bee propolis, and olive leaf extract. But Bee Soothe Cough Syrup isn't the only beekeeper's product I love. My family is obsessed with Bee Lixer Brain Fuel. It helps to naturally beat brain fog, find your flow, and deliver your A-game. We all take one shot first thing in the morning to stay energized, on task, and focused all day. So, are you ready to upgrade your medicine cabinet? This amazing cough syrup always sells out quickly. So don't delay, get yours today. Check out Beekeepers Naturals to try Bee Soothe Cough Syrup and discover other clean remedies your family will love. You can save 15% on your first order today by going to beekeepernaturals.com slash true crime. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash T-R-U-E C-R-I-M-E, to get 15% off. Meet your new medicine cabinet with Beekeepers Naturals.
Before the shootings, Amy drove to the administration building. While still in her car, she called the president's office and said she was going to come discuss her case. She was told President Williams would not meet with her and she should not come into the building. Moments later, Amy watched as the president and provost were escorted out of the building by police. In Huntsville, Amy was the member of a writing group where fledgling authors could get feedback on their writing. This was another place where Amy stood out as prickly and arrogant. Not long after joining, she came to a meeting with numerous copies of her manuscript. She told them she wanted their input before she sent it to her agent. The leader of the group exploded and let her know he did not believe she had an agent. In 1998, in the Ipswich neighborhood where Amy and Jim moved, neighbors reported problems from the first day they arrived. On the first day, their moving truck backed over the basketball hoop where all the neighborhood kids played. All the neighbors thought it was an accident, but soon realized that they had done it intentionally. Afterwards, for just over four years, Amy would often call the police to complain about her neighbors. The music was too loud, bouncing balls was annoying, and the ice cream truck didn't need to come down their street. When a basketball hoop was erected to replace the one that was backed over, Amy complained constantly about it. Finally, some of the parents asked her why it annoyed her so badly. The discussion almost erupted into a fistfight because Amy became so incensed. When rumors spread that they were moving to Alabama, the neighbors rejoiced. The day their vehicle backed out of the driveway for the last time, the neighbors ordered pizza popped open beers, and had an impromptu block party to celebrate her departure. The home they moved to in Huntsville was an anomaly. It sat on two streets. This created a great deal of confusion and caused mail to be lost more than once. In spring of 2008, Jim hit and totaled a police car. Jim's father was called to come bail him out of jail, and when he got into the house, he found things in a huge disarray. Jim Sr. tried to set things right while he was there, but cut his visit short one morning, after a run-in with Amy. He said they were just chatting when, all of a sudden, he apparently said something that set Amy off. She became a different person, both in demeanor and appearance. He said, I have never seen anyone before or after whose face, whose body language changed 100%. I saw a major difference in her eyes. The color of her skin even changed. Amy believed herself to be a master novelist. She wrote three novels which have not been published. In one of them, she describes a lab shooting. In another passage, she discusses the protagonist cleaning a 9mm. Amy and her husband visited Larry's Pistol and Pawn a week before the shooting on the Huntsville campus. Although some articles reported that Jim did not know where she obtained the Ruger, it was determined at a hearing in March 2010 that a friend of Jim's had purchased the gun for Jim in 1989. The friend said he purchased the handgun for Jim in New Hampshire so Jim could get around the waiting list in Massachusetts. Allegedly, Jim was having a problem with a neighbor and wanted a gun. Some people claim that Jim fanned the flames when Amy felt slighted or embarrassed, stoking the fire until she was in a deep rage. Once Amy Bishop was booked into the jail, she was charged with three counts of capital murder, 
and three counts of attempted murder. Her attorney, Roy Miller, said she was likely insane and did not remember the shootings. He went on to say that she suffered from severe mental problems, including paranoid schizophrenia. She was required to take anger management after the 2002 incident at IHOP, but had never actually taken any of the courses. Amy's husband, Jim, remained loyal to her even after her arrest, stating that it was beyond him why his wife, with her violent past and her uncertain future and career, would have snapped like she did. On Thursday, February 25, 2010, university officials notified the press that Amy Bishop had been suspended retroactively to the day of the attack and would be fired. Media had raised questions about her status compared to the professor she wounded. Additionally, after her arrest, an inquest began into the shooting of her brother in Massachusetts. A state police investigator who had worked the original case many years before stated he had never been given the information about the attempted holdup at the car dealership. Also, particularly damning against Amy, was a newspaper clipping caught in a crime scene photo taken of Amy's room. The clipping was about the murder of Patrick Duffy's parents by a teenager who shot them with a 12-gauge shotgun, then stole a getaway car from a dealership. In June 2010, Amy was charged with first-degree murder in connection with the shooting death of her brother in 1986. Investigators said she would have to go on trial in Alabama before she could be tried in Massachusetts. Amy's potential involvement in the 1993 pipe bomb was also reinvestigated. However, in October 2010, the U.S. Attorney's Office stated she was not being charged in that incident, and the case remains unsolved. In 2012, two and a half years after the Huntsville shootings, Amy Bishop was sentenced to life in prison. She had previously pled guilty but was still required to have a trial since she had pleaded guilty to a capital murder charge. Amy repeatedly said she did not have anything to do with the shootings, and in court, she shook her head any time the judge or prosecutors discussed the killings. District Attorney Rob Broussard said this did not make any sense to him. You can't take a loaded 9mm and hold it inches away from human beings' head and tell me you didn't mean to do that. The shootings left the campus in a state of upheaval. The university mourned the loss of three of their professors and rallied around the three who had been shot during the meeting. Gopi Podilla, the department chair, was remembered as a lovable father figure who helped students with anxiety over giving speeches. He told one of his students, if she got nervous, to just look at him. Adriel Johnson had created the Council of African American Faculty in 2004, and Maria Raglan Davis had helped promote it in recent years. In 2004, the two were among only seven Black faculty members at the university. A memorial service was held for the three professors on the campus on Friday, February 19, 2010, and more than 3,000 people attended. Students returned to the Huntsville campus on Monday, February 22nd. The university band was on campus, playing tunes and offering hugs. Deborah Moriarty, Amy's colleague and friend who narrowly escaped death that day, was named the interim department chair. Deborah said one way the survivors got through the event was by remaining in close contact, particularly in the weeks immediately following the shooting. Staff aide Stephanie Monticolo, shot in the head, was still recovering a year later 
and had retired from the university. Professor Joe Leahy, also shot in the head, went through months of treatment as well as multiple operations, began teaching again in the fall semester of 2011, but unfortunately passed away from a heart attack in 2017. He and Amy Bishop both joined the biology department in 2003. Luis Cruz Vera suffered the least severe injuries and returned to teaching sooner than the others. The school suffered a dip in enrollment for biology courses, but the number of biology majors remained stable. A year later, Amy Bishop's office remained dark and locked, with her belongings still inside. Lawsuits were filed against Amy and the University of Alabama Huntsville by the survivors and the victims' families. The suit against UAH alleged that the university had warning signs as to Amy's mental instability. Amy Bishop had attempted suicide at least once while in custody. In what seems like a final insult on top of the injury, the cost of the trial to the state of Alabama was at least $553,000 just for attorneys' fees. Additionally, the state of Massachusetts decided not to pursue the case against Amy once she was sentenced to life in Alabama. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico or Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. 